0: Hey y'all, welcome to Maceway. Go ahead and uh, grab some water, some coffee if it's ready over there. If it's not, it should be ready soon and grab a seat. We're going to try to get going here. Um, Really glad you've made it tonight. We're going to start with our call together, which is a song called uh, River Where Mercy Flows. to go ahead and sing this uh, first verse for you if you haven't heard it and uh, hopefully you'll be able to pick up as we do a couple times here. There is a river where mercy flows. I'm gonna Where it goes, where it goes, follow wherever it goes. So if y'all want to try that with me, there's a river. There is a river where mercy flows. I'm going to follow where it goes, where it goes. Where it goes, follow
1: wherever it goes.
0: it out. There was a death that empties tombs. There was a scar that heals all wounds. He
2: Nice way has everybody recovered from their um, festival weekend or beach weekend or any of that? Who did anybody get out to the uh, Shakori Hills this weekend? Nice. Was it was it too hot? Was it just right? It was hot. It was hot. Yeah. but worth it probably. Yeah, a lot of good things going on. Nice. Um, unfortunately, all of us could not get out there and. <laughs> Babies was telling me camping would not be a good idea right now, so they said um, it.
0: They said it directly, didn't they? I think that's yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. He spoke audible me. voice. That's right, audible yeah. voice from within. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to Emmaus way um, uh, I'm Amy, and I'm on staff here uh, as one of our pastors. And we like to think of ourselves as a church that gathers to um, talk and witness to the redemption of Christ that's going on in our community and the communities around us and um, just speak to that into each, each other's lives a um, couple of things tonight we have a, our abbreviated time change this summer that we tried very hard to do found out it did not work for us this year um, we'll be changing back our 6 o'clock meeting time to 5 o'clock as of next week So July 3rd will be our first week back at 5 o'clock and we're also going to have a special um, ga- Wade likes it um, we're also going to have a special, uh, gathering next week that will be, um, we're going to have a barbecue, um, May's Way will be providing the hot dogs, hamburgers, buns, condiments, and some sodas. So if you guys want to come and bring sides or desserts, that would be great. Beer. Beer. We got in trouble last year for bringing beer.
0: Well, only, only because some people thought it was for communion. And right. And technically it wasn't communion beer.
2: We were just trying to, we just... Tim and I were at Costco. They have the the beer stand set up, and yeah, we were like, I'm, "Done." Yeah, 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 sure. So, explaining that to visiting relatives was hard. But, but if we were
0: Catholic, there'd be no problem at all. That's so right. I'm just saying.
2: It was yeah. Eucharistic. All right. Um. So yeah. So next week is our five o'clock time change. Um. We hope that you guys can come out. We're going to do a shortened service of songs and prayers. Um. After the cookout, from about would we say five thirty or six five to. Six for- Five to six for cookout, six to 6.30 for um, for our gathering, so we hope you all can come out. It's good to see you tonight, and we hope that you guys have a good time uh, fellowshipping with one another and just enjoying the summer together.
0: Yeah, thanks, Amy. We're, we're actually uh, excited tonight to begin a series um, where we're going to use fiction as our text for the conversation. And
1: uh, we're going to have
0: an opportunity to look at a Flannery O'Connor short story tonight. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read uh, a number of pages from it. And I think it's really an amazing story. Um, and uh, its its a, its title is Revelation, but I think um, it's also got this element of conversion, kind of that, that place where you realize in one way or another that the path you're on is... Not the path you want to be on. And uh, Flannery O'Connor, I think, does a really great job of sort of jolting us into um, a vision of of things. And she was a very keen observer, uh, racially being in the South and writing as a Catholic woman uh, in a time before uh, the Civil Rights Movement was fully in the swing. So I think uh, it'll be a really great conversation, but one of the things we wanted to talk about tonight with the music was this idea, too, of a place where we seem to realize that there's a trajectory that we're on that doesn't feel right, whether it's a conviction or some sort of sense that we've hurt people or whether it's just that we don't want to be how we are. And I think when we reach out to God in those places, I think, you know, there's stories all through Scripture of people reaching out to God in those moments and Him meeting them in profound ways. One of the verses I really like about that is that um, it's uh, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so that's what this song is based on. And it's fairly simple. Again, I'll sing and uh, redo it so you guys can catch on. There's no excuse, no one to blame, nowhere to hide. The eyes of God have found my failures, found my pain. He understands my weaknesses, knows my shame, but his heart never leaves me, it's your kindness that leads. So
1: let's
0: go back to the beginning. No excuse. No excuse, no one to blame, nowhere to hide. The eyes of God have found my failures, found my pain. He understands my weaknesses, knows my shame, but his heart never leaves me. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Dear my soul Knowing I don't deserve another chance Then suddenly the kindest words ever come flooding. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, oh Lord Knowing that you will love us no matter what we do makes us want. Can be against us You gave us everything Even your only Son It's your kindness That leads us to repentance Oh Lord Knowing that you love us Makes us wanna love You. with Your kindness that leads us to repentance. so oh, Lord, knowing that You love us no matter what
1: we do, makes us want
0: saved is on our right seven project and um so many of you know it and please sing along if you do if you don't i think you'll pick it up the chorus is just the word saved over and over and i think what's interesting is that um we're saved from a lot of different things and i think we're saved in a lot of different ways god works in our lives in many different ways and i think although uh you know the Salvation process conversion can happen in a moment. There's also a, a process of, of living and of living into the grace of God, li- learning how to love, learning how to be more human, learning how to be as we were made to be. And I think this song is a gratefulness for that place, that moment when the change is happening, but also. Relishing the grace of moving on into life, moving into a life that's more full. I lived a good life, lived a sweet life, for I've had the sun on my face. I have fallen to my knees and been amazed. Have walked beneath the brilliance of a perfect sky. top. Lived a good life. Lived a good life, lived a sweet life, for I've had the sun on my face. I have fallen to my knees and been amazed, I have walked beneath the a good life, lived a sweet life for I have a beautiful friend I am breathless from the mercy of a smile I am standing on
3: I think one of the reasons that we did the saved song on the right seven project was, um, the idea of kind of a comprehensive nature of salvation. There's this sense that we tend to marginalize God by marginalizing the notion of what it means to be transformed, what it means to be employed in God's redemptive kingdom, what it means for communities to be changed. And I think that's one of the things we loved about that song is it, it had such a, a Texturing of an idea that sometimes we make small, uh, not insignificant, but but sometimes we make it small. Uh, so th- in fact, that's a wonderful and perfect introduction to tonight's story. But uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, I, I'll give you a second. We pass the piece. There's snacks here now. Uh, Josh and uh, Sarah probably need the all-time Hall of Fame award. Thanks to so many of you guys who worked on Wild Goose uh, and volunteered. We we were kind of in the parking realm. And a lot of you guys helped, but I think Josh must have uh, uh, run the whole conference by the time it worked out that way. So a big thanks to Josh and Sarah and uh, and, uh, and then having to be host tonight at the same time. What a great uh, busy weekend for those guys. But as is our tradition, I want to give you a chance to stand up, offer each other the peace of Christ. Uh, if you are sitting by somebody you don't know, introduce yourself and uh, use this opportunity to grab some coffee or snack or whatever um, and kind of uh, warm up our voices. I'm excited about Um, This uh, fiction series that we're doing this summer. We're going to look at a Flannery O'Connor story called uh, Revelation. Thanks to, I think Amy's the one who recommended this one this week. So anyway, I'm looking forward to to chatting with you about that. So stand up, greet each other, and I'll give you a shout in about 90 seconds. Well, I think it's going to be fun to uh, Do some fiction this summer and relate that as a a text that relates to biblical text and uh, all of those things. Got to say a quick hello to Larry. Larry, welcome back, buddy. How's your? uh, uh, We miss Larry. Larry. Larry is a, is a part of Emmaus Way. He's also, his vocation is that of an interim pastor. So he does, goes into churches that need uh, radical overhauls to friendly overhauls to all sorts of things. And he had finished a really long assignment and then was here for about a year. And you're up in Danville now. Is that going all right? Very good. Well, we, we're, it's a delight when you can can uh, traipse through, and we know it's a really busy Sunday for you to be sitting here on a Sunday evening. So, the uh, so thanks, Larry. A um, Couple quick thoughts for you. Um, one of the things that that got us thinking about doing a series on, on fiction this summer is, uh, and, and I know there's several of you, Chelsea and Elizabeth and lots of you guys that, that, that have taught, uh, literature and history. I hope you're bringing kind of your own enthusiasm, your own experience to this. Um, I'm not going to be sitting as an expert as on every writer and person that we do, Um, but it's, it's going to be fun to kind of do this Flannery O'Connor story this week. One of the things that, that, and I've told you this many times, but I was nurtured in an environment where I, I, I was taught to love the Bible. I was kind of one of those, uh, I was truly a Bible nerd in the sense that probably somewhere between seventh grade and eighth grade, I, I read the Bible through, you know, and just was one of those kids that, you know, was taught that that was a good thing to do and read it through. I got so frightened in a couple sections that, uh, that I, you know, I asked my parents about it and they basically said well those those i don't know it works out in the end you know but <laughs> uh, but i, I wasn't in an environment where Asking theological questions was not really a, a comfortable thing to do. I was in a church, tra- you know, and, and every every heritage and every tradition has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, the, the strength of my community, a rural community, was was community. It was people knowing each other and knowing each other's lives. But there was always a little bit of, of, of fear of, of asking a theological question that, that there wasn't an answer to. And, and so I remember that was a little bit of the game that we played as you, you tried to kind to ask a question that's, that, the, that, the, that the answerer could give you a good answer to, so to speak. And I think that's where I fell in love with fiction, is that in, in reading a whole range of things, um, I, I've, I found that I was able to imagine the questions that I thought were forbidden. And, and in some ways, some of that kind of yeah i don't know for lack of a better term theological defensiveness that one has that that sometimes when you catch yourself saying it has to be this way because it it can only be this way and and um and and, and fiction allowed me to kind of work my way around that roadblock and to uh, uh, imagine questions uh, uh, ponder the reality of God the goodness of God uh, even the, the the terror of God to some degree and I, I think we've probably all done this watched a film or or been involved with something where you've basically said my goodness I, I'm not sure how to process this and and in some ways uh, prayer and imagination and all of those things is the same impulse it's the same imaginative experience expression of searching for the presence, the redemptive presence of God in a world that sometimes doesn't display it very much. Uh, So I think this will be good for us. Uh, Today, we're going to do a story called Revelation, and we're going to try to do these differently every week. And and, and if you'll bear with us over the next two to three, four weeks, we'll kind of figure out what works and what works best. Um, uh, Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to read a portion of this story. Um, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to give you a heads up in a couple of weeks, what I'm going to try to do is send out uh, maybe a short PDF on our on our weekly email that'll give you a taste of a story. But if you're the type of person that really wants to to read a story in advance, in two weeks on July 10th, I'm going to do Graham Greene's uh, "The Power and Glory," which is actually a Dan Rhodes. Uh, I had never heard of Graham Greene until I met Dan, and Dan and a couple of other Mesa Way folks were were just huge fans, and so I, I read th- this. Uh, Pretty intense story of a whiskey priest in uh, in uh, Mexico when uh, Christianity and religion has been outlawed. It's it's a great read. It's a short read, probably like 120 pages. Uh, uh, so if you want to read that, uh, go to the library or or or, uh, or pick it up and uh, and and read that in advance. You definitely could get it done in two weeks without a lot of extra work, and it's a good story. It's well worth that. So that's what's coming next. Uh, to yeah. Well, most of its pictures, you know, Stan Rhodes. I mean, it was a, it was a color in kind of book, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's true. You guys are working me hard today. Uh, giving me grief about my engineer's mug here that I just picked up from the table. <laughs> Now, in prep for Flannery O'Connor, uh, Chelsea and Jenny and Sarah are going to be our readers tonight. And this story, I'll, I'll set the stage where you're going to get about 35% of the story. So tonight, you're going to get a chance to hear the story. Um, a, a little bit of the preview here is that Flannery O'Connor writes in the South. Her scenes are, uh, I think she died around 1964 at a fairly young age, had an amazingly fast career. Uh, 40 or 50 short stories. And anybody who's a public speaker will tell you this. If you ask me to speak for an hour on something, I probably could do it in five minutes. But if you ask me to speak for five minutes on a subject, I probably need five days to prepare. So in some ways, short stories are much harder to prepare than than a longer uh, longer work. And I think she wrote about 40 short stories, two novels. Uh, uh, She had inherited, uh, I think this is true, lupus from her father who died of lupus. So she uh, only lived to about 39 years old and really came from nowhere to a, a prestigious kind of writer's circle. I think in in as, as Iowa, uh, I think is correct with that. But uh, anyway, just an amazing career. Writes a great deal about faith and doubt and fiction set in kind of the pre-civil um, rights era of the South. So you're going to hear the word nigger several times in the reading of this. So I want to prepare you for that. We kind of had a quick pondering of of what was appropriate with this. Chelsea says when she taught this in eighth grade, you just read it, but you didn't say it. But, Uh, well, uh, so I'm saying this so that you won't be mad at Chelsea because I've never heard her say it before either. Uh, but but it, it's very layered into uh, the the observations of the of the story. Uh, and so it, listen to the story. Enjoy listening to the story. Uh, relax. Um, and and afterwards, we're going to discuss this in terms of how it strikes you personally, how it strikes us culturally. What does it tell us about the world that we're in, and how it strikes us theologically? And so uh, this will be very much an open conversation. And I have a few things that, that I can insert as well. So, Hey, why don't you guys all come and sit up front today? So you have the microphone if you'd like to use it and I'll go back over here and sit. And, and, uh, the the only scene setting here that you might need is there's two scenes that are going to be a part of this this stuff here. And this scene is a, a doctor's waiting room. And the lead character, the first person that's going to be mentioned is a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And she's sitting in kind of the, and you know, that feeling that you have, if you like at the DMV or doctor's office or a public place where all of humanity is gathered and waiting for the same thing. That's the space that we're in as this begins.
4: next to her was a fat girl of 18 or 19 scowling into a thick blue book which miss turpin saw was entitled human development the girl raised her head and directed her scowl at mrs turpin as if she did not like her looks she appeared annoyed that anyone should speak while she tried to read the poor girl's face was blue with acne and mrs turpin thought how pitiful it was to have a face like that at that age she gave the girl a friendly smile but the girl only scowled the harder mrs turpin herself was fat but she'd always had good skin, and though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from laughing too much. Next to the ugly girl was the child, still in exactly the same position, and next to him was a thin, leathery old woman in a cotton print dress. She and Claude had three sacks of chicken feed in their pump house, so it was the same print. She had seen from the first that the child belonged with the old woman. She could tell by the way they sat kind of vacant and white trashy, as if they would sit there until doomsday if nobody called and told them to get up. And at right angles, but next to the well-dressed pleasant lady, was a lank-faced woman who was certainly the child's mother. She had on a yellow sweatshirt and wine-colored slacks, both gritty-looking, and the rims of her lips were stained from snuff. Her dirty yellow hair was tied behind with a little piece of red paper ribbon. Worse than niggers any day, Mrs. Turpin thought. The gospel hymn playing was... When I looked up and he looked down, and Mrs. Turpin, who knew it, supplied the last line mentally, and one of these days I know I'm going to wear a crown. Without appearing to, Mrs. Turpin always noticed people's feet. The well-dressed lady had on red and gray suede shoes to match her dress. Mrs. Turpin had on her good black patent leather pumps. The ugly girl had on Girl Scout shoes and heavy socks. The old woman had on tennis shoes, and the white, trashy mother had on what appeared to be bedroom slippers, black straw with gold bread threaded through them, exactly what you would have expected her to have on. Sometimes at night, when she couldn't go to sleep, Mrs. Turpin would occupy herself with the question of who she would have chosen to be if she couldn't have been herself. If Jesus had said to her before he made her, there's only two places available for you, you can either be a nigger or white trash, what would she have said? please, Jesus, please, she would have said, just let me wait until there's another place available. And he would have said, no, you have to go right now and I only have those two places, so make up your mind. She would have wiggled and squirmed and begged and pleaded, but it would have been no use. And finally she would have said, all right, make me a nigger then. But don't meet, that don't mean a trashy one. And he would have made her a neat, clean, respectable Negro woman, herself but black. Next to the child's mother was a red headed youngish woman, reading one of the magazines and working a piece of chewing gum, hell for leather, as Claude would say. Mrs. Turpin could not see the woman's feet. She was not white trash, just common. Sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most colored people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. And then next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and landowners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land. But the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her, for some of the people with a lot of money were common and ought to be below she and Claude. And some of the people who had good blood had lost their money and had to rent. People who had, and then there were colored people who owned their homes and land as well. There was a colored dentist in town who had two red Lincolns, a swimming pool, and a farm with registered white-faced cattle on it. Usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and rolling around in her head, and she would dream that they were all crammed in there together in a boxcar, being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. "'Do
5: you have one of the cotton-picking machines?' the pleasant lady asked. "'No,' Mrs. Turpin said. They leave half the cotton in the field. We don't have much cotton anyway. If you want to make it farming now, you have to have a little of everything. We got a couple of acres of cotton and a few hogs and chickens and just enough white face that Claude can look after them himself. One thing I don't want, the white trash woman said, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. Hogs. Nasty stinking things. A gruntin' and a rootin' all over the place. Mrs. Turpin gave her the merest edge of her attention. "'Our hogs are not dirty, and they don't stink,' she said. "'They're cleaner than some children I've seen. "'Their feet never touch the ground. "'We have a pig parlor. "'That's where you raise them on concrete,' she explained to the pleasant lady. "'And Claude scoots them down with the hose every afternoon and washes off the floor. "'Cleaner by far than that child right there,' she thought. "'Poor nasty little thing. "'He had not moved except to put the thumb of a dirty hand into his mouth.' The woman turned her face away from Mrs. Turpin. I know I wouldn't scoot down no hog with no hose, she said to the wall. You wouldn't have no hog to scoot down, Mrs. Turpin said to herself. A gruntin' and a rootin' and a gruntin', the woman muttered. We got a little of everything, Mrs. Turpin said to the pleasant lady. It's no use having more than you can handle yourself with help like it is. We found enough niggers to pick our cotton this year, but Claude, he has to go after them and take them home again in the evening. They can't walk that half a mile. No, they can't. I tell you, and she said as she laughed merrily, I sure am tired of buttering up niggers, but you got to love them if you want them to work for you. When they come in the morning, I run out and I say, hi, y'all, this morning. And when Claude drives them off the field, I just wave to beat the band and they just wave back. And she waved her hand rapidly to illustrate. Like you read out of that same book, the lady said, showing she understood perfectly. Child, yes, Mrs. Turpin said. And when they come in from the field, I run out with a bucket of ice water. That's the way it's going to be from now on, she said. You may as well face it. One thing I know, the white trash woman said, two things I ain't going to do. Love no niggers or screw down no hog with no hose and she let out a bark of contempt. The look that Mrs. Turpin and the pleasant lady exchanged indicated that they both understood that you you had to have certain things before you could know certain things. But every time Mrs. Turpin exchanged a look with the lady, she was aware that the ugly girl's peculiar eyes were still on her, and she had trouble bringing her attention back to the conversation. When you got something, she said, you got to look after it. And when you ain't got a thing, but a breath and riches, she added to herself, you can afford to come to town every morning and just sit on the courthouse coping and spit.
6: Mrs. Turpin didn't catch every word, but she caught enough to agree with the spirit of the song, and it turned her thoughts sober. To help anybody out that needed it was her philosophy of life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need, whether they were white or black, trash or decent. And of all she had to be thankful for, she was most thankful that this was so. If Jesus had said, you can be high society and have all the money you want and be thin and svelte like, but you can't be a good woman with it, she would have had to say, well, don't make me that then. Make me a good woman and it don't matter what else, how fat or how ugly or how poor. Her heart rose. He had not made her a nigger or white trash or ugly. He had made her herself and given her a little of everything. Jesus, thank you, she said. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Whenever she counted her blessings, she felt as buoyant as if she had weighed 125 pounds instead of 180. What's wrong with your little boy? Stop, let's see. All at once, the ugly girl turned her lips inside out again, her eyes fixed like two drills on Mrs. Turpin. This time, there was no mistaking that there was something urgent behind them. Girl, Mrs. Turpin exclaimed silently, I haven't done a thing to you. The girl might be confusing her with somebody else. There was no need to sit by and let herself be intimidated. You must be in college, she said boldly, looking directly at the girl. I see you reading a book there. (laughs) The girl continued to stare and pointedly did not answer. Her mother blushed at this rudeness. The lady asked you a question, Mary Grace, she said under her breath. I have ears, Mary Grace said. The poor mother blushed again. Mary Grace goes to Wellesley College, she explained. She twisted one of the buttons on her dress. In Massachusetts, she added with a grimace. And in the summer, she just keeps right on studying, just reads all the time, a real bookworm. She's done real well at Wellesley. She's taking English and math and history and psychology and social studies, she rattled on. And I think it's too much. I think she ought to get out and have fun.
4: Her mother's mouth grew thin and tight. I think the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person. To have everything and not appreciate it? I know a girl, she said who has parents who would give her anything, a little brother who loves her dearly, who is getting a good education, who wears the best clothes, but who can never say a kind word to anyone, who never smiles, who just criticizes and complains all day long. Is she too old to paddle? Claude asked. The girl's face was almost purple. Yes, the lady said. I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to her folly. Someday she'll wake up, but it'll be too late. It never hurt anyone to smile, Mrs. Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all over. Of course, the lady said sadly, but there are just some people you can't tell anything to. They just can't take criticism. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I feel just like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus, Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over the left eye. <laughs> it struck at almost the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and Cloud shout, whoa, there was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake. All at once, her vision narrowed and she saw everything as if it were happening in a small room far away or as if she were looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope. Cloud's face crumpled and it fell out of sight. The nurse ran in, then out, then in again. Then the gangling figure of the doctor rushed out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way, and that as the table turned over. The girl fell with a thud, and Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she saw everything large instead of small. The eyes of the white, trashy woman were staring hugely at the floor. There the girl, held down by one side by the nurse and the other by her mother, was wrenching and turning in their grasp. The doctor was kneeling astride her, trying to hold her arm down. He managed for a second to sink a long needle into it. Mrs. Turpin felt entirely hollow except for her heart, which swung from side to side as if it were agitated in a great empty drum of flesh. Somebody that's not that busy call for an ambulance, the doctor said in that offhand voice young doctors adopt for terrible occasions. Mrs. Turpin could not have moved a finger. The old man who had been sitting next to her skipped nimbly into the office and made the call for for the secretary still seemed to be gone. Claude, Mrs. Turpin called. He was not in his chair. She knew she must jump up and find him, but she felt like someone was trying to catch a dream, a train in a dream, and everything moves in slow motion, and the faster you try to run, the slower you go. Here I am, in a suffocated voice, very unlike Claude, said. He was doubled up in the corner of the floor, pale as paper, holding his leg. She wanted to get up and go to him, but she could not move instead her gaze was drawn slowly downward to the turning face on the floor which she could see over the doctor's shoulder the er girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her they seemed a much lighter blue than before as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air mrs turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returned she leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce brilliant eyes there was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as she saw with pleasure that her message had struck its target.
3: Now, there's a quick scene change the last uh two parts that they're going to read of this is uh she's gone home mrs turpin has gone home and she's in the uh infamous uh concrete uh pog pin uh, as as the as, uh, big, parlor. Uh, big, parlor. big parlor uh as as it said uh, so that's where it is
5: a gruntin and a rootin and a groanin give me that hose she said yanking it away from claude go on and carry them niggers home and then get off that leg you look like you might have swallowed a mad dog Claude observed but he got down and limped off he paid no attention to her humors until he was out of earshot Mrs. Turpin stood on the side of the pen holding the hose and pointing the stream of water at the hind quarters of any show that looked as if it might try to lie down when he had had time to get over the hill she turned her head slightly and her wrathful eyes scanning the, p- her wrathful eyes scanning the path he was nowhere in sight she turned back again and seemed to gather herself up her shoulders rose and she drew in her breath what do you send me a message like that for she said in a low fierce voice barely above a whisper but with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury how am i a hog and me both how am i saved and from hell too her free fist was knotted and with the other she gripped the hose blindly pointing the stream of water in and out of the eye of an old sow whose outraged squeal she did not hear. The pig parlor commanded a view of the back pasture where their 20 beef cows were gathered around the hay bales. Claude and the boy had put out. The freshly cut pasture sloped down to the highway. Across it was their cotton field and beyond that a dark green dusty wood which they owned as well. The sun was behind the wood, very red looking over the paling trees like a farmer inspecting his own hogs. Why me? She rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to, and break my back to the bone every day working and do for the church. She appeared to be the right size woman to command the arena before her. How am I a hog? She demanded. Exactly how am I like them? And she jabbed the stream of water at the shoats. There was plenty of trash there, It didn't have to be me if you like trash better go get yourself some trash then she railed you could have made me trash or a nigger if trash is what you wanted why don't you make me trash she shook her fist with the hose in it and the watery snake appeared momentarily in the air I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy she growled lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face I could be nasty Or you could have made me a nigger. It's too late for me to be a nigger, she said with deep sarcasm, but I could act like one. Lay down in the middle of the road and stop traffic, roll on the ground. In the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. The pasture was growing a peculiar glassy green, and the streak of highway had turned lavender. She braced herself for a final assault, and this time her voice rolled out over the pasture, go on she yelled call me a hog call me a hog again from hell call me a warthog from hell put that bottom reel on top there'll still be a top and a bottom a garbled echo returned echo returned to her a final surge of fury shook her and she roared, who do you think you are
6: the color of everything field and crimson sky burned for a moment with a transparent intensity The question carried over the pasture and across the highway and the cotton field and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood. She opened her mouth, but no sound came out of it. A tiny truck, Clods, appeared on the highway, heading rapidly out of sight. Its gears scraped thinly. It looked like a child's toy. At any moment, a bigger truck might smash into it and scatter Clods and the niggers' brains all over the road. Mrs. Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway, all her muscles rigid, until in five or six minutes the truck reappeared, returning. She waited until it had had time to turn into their own road. Then, like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed, as if through the very heart of mystery, down into the pig parlor at the hogs. They had settled all in one corner around the old sow who was grunting softly, A red glow suffused them. They appeared to pant with a secret life. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound, a visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of black niggers in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who like herself and Claude had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right she leaned forward to observe them closer they were marching behind the others with great dignity accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior they alone were on key yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away she lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead in a moment the vision faded but she remained where she was immobile at length she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah.
3: Thanks, ladies. Dave, if you've never read that story, I would recommend that you read it and read it a couple of times because that was about my fourth time today. And I was shocked by the number of things that I it just kind of fell into my lap hearing it read again. And sometimes even hearing it read is better than your own voice. But I wanted to give you a chance to react to that story. I'm going to actually roll all three questions that I was going to roll into a single question so you can can react any way you want to. You can react personally as how that story Resonated with you? How it uh, how, how, how you how it connected with your own story, or or a question of culture? Uh, what what does this story tell us about the world that we live in? Obviously, it's somewhat different from uh, I don't know Georgia in the mid fifties, uh, but uh, but uh, that way. And also, feel free to offer any kind of theological insight or or thoughts that you had in in the many rich symbols of the story. So react. Ten,
7: nine. Kind of it drew me to just this week was a little strange. We had a homeowner association, uh, the first one I've been to for the final one, and the one down in South there was kind of a disaster uh, the point where just, like, it took two people to pass the budget because nobody wanted to be around each other. <laughs> so up here I thought it might be a little bit different, but people just have a platform to voice all their grievances so somebody started you know I don't care what color you are I don't want to see a bunch of teenagers going around the neighborhood at night you know their their parents should be different and that all these section 8 renters we need to modify the covenant so they just can't come in anymore somebody pointed out that's a violation of federal law
3: we we at least need to make it difficult for them and the person who pointed out was the the
7: manager not the residents but we had to at least make it difficult for them, and then uh, so the next thing was the that bus they put out here. Anybody from the city could just be coming out here, and who knows what's going on. <laughs> the weird thing was, this is a black community, and these were all black people saying this. So the the issues of fear and uh, of otherness uh, between homeowners and renters—it's really strange around here like it's not so easy to classify and say you know this person's going to be accepting or this person is going to feel like they're different or the
3: same mm-hmm. yeah this the this this story uh, I, it would convey not only a homeowners meeting, but I think it reminded me of, of lots of, of like church congregational meetings that I've been in over the last 30 years, not really in Emmaus way meeting, I can say very thankfully, but, uh, but a few that are etched in my memory from, from days of the past. It's a good analogy. other reactions personally, culturally, theologically from this story.' go Jesse and then
8: we'll get the one on there. When I, when I first moved to North Carolina. You know, So, Um, I was walking with some friends. There's this bike path down in Carboro. A lot of people walk it to get from, like, Franklin Street Chapel Hill to, you know, downtown Carboro. And uh, uh, we 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 walked past this man, an African American man, and uh, we were all four of us in conversation. And as he was walking past us. You know, I just sort of looked up and nodded at him, uh, which was, I thought, you know, a greeting. Coming from New England, that was like, I was like oh, right. That's a hug
3: and a kiss from New Hampshire, right? <laughs> you know, one of my
8: friends, she grew up in New York, so it was just, you know, we're, we're not, not used to making a big deal about passing someone on the street. And he gets past us, and I hear him mumbling or something, and he, by, by now, he's like, from me to this wall, he, you know, he's pretty far past us, but... He said something, and I said, what, uh, what, what's going on? And he says, yeah, a bunch of rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just kind of dumbfounded, and he kept walking, and we kept walking, and you know, I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, but I think the story reminded me of that because it's like you can be your, – your world can make so much sense. In, in you know, based on your own experience, and then and then someone can confront you with it, and it begins to make no sense at all. It, and it, it, it's like the, the truth becomes <clears throat>
3: becomes false suddenly, and mm-hmm. it's you know, it's a great point. Somebody over here was, yeah, was, what was I was just gonna
9: say, it's been an extremely twilight zone moment of a culmination of events for me this past week. I, read a book called um, Good Girls Don't Change the World. I believe this was entitled, title. And it's basically a, a preacher's wife who had always grown up believing you know, you can earn God's love. It's not just giving. You have to earn it. And you have to be the nice girl. And you have to please everybody. And she finally realized that she was slowly killing herself and really losing her relationship with God by trying to just please everyone and do everything for everyone. And then um, I was also at the Wild best Festival. Feel free to jump in on this because y'all were at the same talk. Um, uh, Talking by Melvin Gray, who's a good friend of mine down in Atlanta, was talking about the importance of telling stories and how our stories affect how we view things and how we talk about things and how we address issues and how they're taken differently by other people. Um, So, you know, a story like this really touches me because I'm, I'm a Southerner. I have a whole family line of Southerners. I can even think of women who I could... See in this role, real easy. Um, so you have that, and then you have this conversation tonight, and it's just totally
3: one of those just eerily lined up. Wade and I were chuckling that we have family backgrounds of. I mean, this this could have been a, a family conversation. I think Wade's family actually prayed for the salvation of uh, Flannery O'Connor, or at least doubted it quite significantly throughout the years. <laughs> yeah.
10: Was living in middle Georgia probably when she wrote that story. Um, I never met her, I was a child then, but my dad went over and met her uh, with some of his friends. Now that I've said that, that gives me no better right to interpretation of anything. But um, it just somehow, it just somehow. speaks to the fact that she's talking about real stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the thing that, that I'm connecting with that tonight is, um, I've been giving a lot of thought for the last, off and on for the last several years, to a book that I read by um, Wesley Cord at the religion department at Duke. Um, He's a very gentle, mild, matter man, if any of you uh, don't know him, but he, I used to talk to him sometimes walking back and forth to the parking lot, because he parked out in the boonies so he could get some exercise, and I had no choice being a junior person there, but, um, <laughs> and then I, I finally read the book that he talked to me about, and it was, it changed the way I saw things, and I didn't like it, but I think he's right, <laughs> which was he's basically saying that human beings define ourselves by being over against some other group of human beings. And he is talking about that particularly in regard to theology in his book, um, which for the moment my mind is blank on. but. Um, when I hear the news about the, the different types of Islamic um, peoples and and wherever you are in the world, how these people who from a distance look so similar to each other, but their identity is, is based on defining themselves over against each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought about how it seems to me that that's maybe one of the marks of original sin, <laughs> you know, that that this is just so pervasive in human life. And it just seems to me that that's not the way we we ought to get our identity. And yet the more I observe people, um, the more I'm convinced, hey, that's really what we all do.
3: Mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor was a, uh infamous, infamous critic of uh, of uh, Protestant Calvinism, but was clearly a good one-point Calvinist in terms of her, her view of, of society. I mean, it is it is so true. And you think about the number of times, I, I, in terms of, of just being in a pastoral relationship with many uh, through the years, one of the things I, I've you know, cared for friends and talked to people and who live in family systems that don't work unless there's a common enemy. Uh, that's a very common kind of psychological function that you might have a family with four siblings. And as long as one person can be out, the rest of the family can function. And a lot of theological and Christian and religious uh, communities work in the same way. As long as we can spend some energy uh, excluding someone, then the system works. And Politically, how much have we seen, the, especially in our own community, uh, violence uh, between different ethnic groups and kind of the lower socioeconomic spectrum, where it seems like there's a perpetual battle to be second to last, so to speak, in a, in a social pecking order. And, and in some ways, it makes the gospel so unbelievably counter story to the world that, that we live in. Dan Reason? Um, I was
11: struck by the image of the book. Hitting the woman in the eye, Ms. Turpin in the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember the title
3: of the book,
1: Dan? Human, Human Development. development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
11: But it made me think, it made me just reflect, and I don't know if this is like, true to the narrative or not, or what O'Connor was trying to do, but, um, you know, I have to think, Like in the real circumstances of Georgia during the time, that there was this kind of um, white middle class ideology, uh, or, or just kind of thought that, well, if everybody just doesn't make a ruckus and stays still, things will slowly get better, right? Mm-hmm. It was the kind of, look, you're in a better circumstances than you were because you're, you're, uh, because white people have provided for you. Um, the future will get better if we just kind of stay uh, where we are. And it, I was thinking and reflecting on, I think it's the passage, is it First Peter, where uh, there's the passage uh, that states that they have all forms of godliness but deny its power? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if this is an image of the gospel hitting somebody in the eye, you know, I'd always been taught to think about that passage of, well, we should be out, you know, like throwing lightning bolts at people or something like that. We're not really faithful enough because we don't, we're not capable of doing that. But I, I think it might actually, what O'Connor's trying to do is throw that back on us. Like what would the power of the gospel look like if it actually hit us in the eye? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a, almost a violent thing. Um, which is what I like about o- o- O'Connor's writing is that often God's intervention is almost violent in a certain way um, not because I like violence but it just kind of shakes up you know, yeah. it shakes up the order in a way that doesn't allow you to tell these superficial stories about we're really getting better um, or things are not as bad as you think they are.
3: And if you're a Flannery O'Connor fan, one of the things that you probably caught that Dan is referring to there is um, she often uses grotesque characters. tell the truth. We got a lot of description of this girl's acne and her scowl and, and, you know, whether it's the misfit and uh, a good man is hard to find or, and and she used to joke that in her day and age, uh, um, and Jesse hate to say this, when I moved to uh, New England in the eighties, part of my church, anytime they did a skit on somebody that was stupid, they would drop a Southern accent on them, no matter what. (laughs) I used to say that to the missions pastor, that's not so decidedly cross-cultural. But, but her point was that everybody in her day believed that the South was so grotesque that she finally just thought, well, I will make uh, Southerners grotesque so that if they are what they expect they, they hear, they might hear their voice. Uh, but uh, the other thing that was really interesting, did you catch the name of the, of the girl who threw the book? Mary Grace and and what a a, a powerful sense. of this is O'Connor really challenging us to, particularly when I mentioned that kind of uh, fundamentalist Protestant kind of Calvinism that might have said the the world is the way it is, and and maybe an implicit theology that says, well, you know, because uh, Philip and McKenzie have got some hogs, they're probably a little better than than uh, the Thomases who don't. You know, that that kind of like the world is fitting it to the order that God has set for that. And, and, and one of the things that she used was her Catholic theology, this idea of a means of grace that's beyond ourselves. And so there are images of the communion table in this and images of a sacramental presence of God and, and a strong rebuke, both in the ending and through the story, that some of the classes and divisions and hierarchies that we create, and we create them theologically, we create them sociologically, we create them as religious. Religious people are, in some ways, uh, an entirely not reflection of God's grace and mercy. So here is this profound kind of Catholic name of a scowling, grotesque figure throwing a book that, in some ways, makes the, the the gospel a counter story to everything that that has kept Mrs. Turpin probably in in a painful kind of purgatory, so to speak. So wonderful, wonderful. Other reactions, uh, trigger. Trigger Grace, what, what do we get for us? Uh,
8: I, one of the things that kind of stuck to me that was interesting is, so the story ends kind of with this biblical imagery of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and they're all going up to heaven. So you're thinking, great, but, but what's interesting in the actual story, though, as well, that is, is it's not like like everyone's actually guilty in the story, though. It's because you have this proper, respectable white woman who... The Wellesley girl just sees, to the core of it, right, sees that <laughs> wickedness. But you, you have the white trash woman being grateful that she's not a nigger. Um, and everyone's just kind of, there's this weird complicity. And you, you would almost, like, hope that, that, like with the poor white people, that, well, gosh, maybe in some Marxist proletariat sense there'd be solidarity and they'd pull together, but instead... The white trash people in the story still, they still buy into the structure, and it's like, well, at least I'm not this thing. And in that sense, they're, they're guilty of a sin, but in another sense, they're also a victim of something that's being put on them by the people higher up in the social order, making them feel mm-hmm. less. And so it's not just this thing about individual sin and status, it is individual sin, and it's this corporate sin, this corporate game we're all playing, you know, to where everyone's guilty, and it does, I think, in in the end, off to heaven, I think it's going to be a really surprising part of how things go, but... But what's great about Surrey is it's just it's like life, it's not flat and it's not black or white where all the oppressed people are all great and all religious people all villains. It's like they're all in it. But just because they're all in it, it still doesn't mean that some maybe aren't more responsible collectively than others. And that's kind of a thing you can look around today. I mean like what Daniel's saying. It's not just about race anymore. Class is becoming one of the bigger issues than race. I mean, race is definitely a problem in this country, but, but it's not even that simple anymore. And so I think a question like a book, a story like this, just needs to get us thinking about how the game's being played and what part we're playing.
3: It's why I love that book, that song Save, that Wade did, because it adds much more texture to the idea of transformation. And I know sometimes it's hard for us to talk about, you know, that great Greek word "metanoia," repentance, change, conversion, because many times it's so trivialized of of people saying hey, I get Jesus and I don't have to change anything about the world that's around me. And I think that's what I like about Flannery Connor is she cuts to the core of our assumptions and asks for radical transformation. I mean, one of the great biblical images in this story is the transformation in the pig parlor, so to speak. Uh, really, you, you almost can hear uh, the parable of the prodigal son being told again in this. And, and so many times uh, that that. That moment of transformation is is not just a, a simple uh, willingness to kind of get God on our side, and a lot of times our faith is reduced to I, I'm I'm good with how I am because God's on my side, and look at all the evidence that that presents it as such. And as long as I insulate myself enough, I can continue to believe in that evidence. But as you point out, Trigger, this story is an indictment of a whole structure, and and you get the the, the huge cataclysmic transformation of Last being first and first being last. And those in the last having their righteousness in some ways burned away like everyone else. It's a, it's a powerful story. Amy, let me give you a last word on this. You were the, you were the one who recommended this story.
2: I'm sorry <laughs> if anybody uh, didn't like it or thought it was grotesque because I, I told Tim, Revelation is my favorite story. I hope everybody's not affected. So, <laughs> uh, but I was kind of on like a very basic thematic level, it always struck me that this conversation that they're having in this doctor's room, or this doctor's waiting room, goes on for what seems like hours, right? And nobody gets called, nobody leaves the room, and they're at this place of, you know, what should be, like you said, like the DMV, an office waiting room, should be very, I mean, when you walk into those places, you are the same as everybody else, right? You are a number, you are on the waiting list, um, becomes this very, like, striated um, level of Class and race and, and discussion, but nobody gets called back to be like we're not sure why anybody's there. We're not sure like what malady anybody has. And then um, at the end, when somebody actually does get physically hurt, they call
1: in external help. Like they're in a office.
2: <laughs> and everyone's like, "Oh crap, call that a Yeah, So that really struck me. And she, Philly O'Connor, does that really well. Setting putting places, um, putting characters in places that should be um, places of healing, or should be places of kind of, um, you know, people coming together and enjoying one another, and turns them into these really, um, obviously, shocking and grotesque and revelations of, of just kind of basic humanity's failure. Um, so that always struck me, is that everybody's just sitting around, like um, dance and waiting for things to change. Uh-huh.
3: And it's funny, in some ways, there's such a strong indictment. Jesse and I, you were talking about what's changing in the world that we're in. And there's such a strong indictment of of church and Christian community in this that what should be a healing place is not... uh, is not always a healing place, and I was struck, I think we had a a Mrs. Turpin moment. Our staff was gathered at Foster's the other day. You remember this? We were in the back room, which is so loud, and you know, there's a rule, you know, that you don't talk so loud, and and even Dan, who's our, I think our most mild-mannered staff person, was starting to go crazy because there's this one group of these three kind of business guys that are so loud that at some point, they've reached the point where they're playing for the whole room. They want everybody to know what they're saying. And, and it finally, we're, we're like, could we kill him? You know, and, and to some degree, I was reading that going, that was our Mrs. Turpin moment. I mean, th- that this conversation was imposed on the, 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 the whole world. And, 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 and here this revelation enters in an unanticipated, unexpected kind of manner. So today, actually, thank you, Amy, and and kind of as a plan, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get recommendations, and if you recommend something, I'd love for you to be prepared to talk about why you love it so much, and, and that was just a great story. It's one of a hers that I had never read. It's at the end of her collected stories, so I, I think I must have petered out somewhere in the 300s or so and didn't get to the end of that, but that was a great, was great...
2: playing Jason Biasey because he, Jesse knows, we read it in a class for a hit of his at Duke, so...
3: Great, great, great story. Well, tonight, what, you know, Dan is going to take us to the table, but I hope that this would add meaning to what happens next. Is one of the things that we do regularly in our worship gathering is a, a time of confession and absolution. We usually do the liturgy in music, and music, and we find that sometimes music offers words that, that we may not have created ourselves. But I want to encourage you tonight as we, as we do the first time as a song of confession, And by way of sorrow is a a song that uh, that helps helps kind of continue the obsession uh, confession to to be able to sing, to pray. Uh, if you're more comfortable standing or walking into the corner of the room as you listen to this and and uh, and one of the ways that we do enter this story is the desperate need for confession and I, I don't think anybody's going to call you a warthog from hell tonight, uh, uh, but to some degree those are those are words that we embrace in certain ways, but we also desperately need to embrace deeply loved by God, uh, uh, deeply uh, reached to, loved, and encountered by the grace and mercy of God. And so uh, if it's a book in the eye or just a warm hug that you receive tonight, accept that as as, uh, as a, a physical or verbal manifestation of God's grace and mercy.
0: Yeah, last week you guys talked about Psalm 8, and my professor at Stanford, who was a expert on Martin Luther would say that he loved to talk about the dignity and the depravity of man. And I think you got that in Psalm 8, that there's great dignity in how we are created. And then there's great depravity in how we are as well. And there's a tension. And so I think I I saw that in the story tonight when she said, how can I be saved and from hell at the same time? And I think one of the things that keeps us from staying in that place, staying in hell and staying uh, moving into bitterness is that I think sometimes when we run into something that's a revelation and then we're loved, I think love is the thing that can always uh, help us move into a place of healing rather than bitterness. And that's what this confession is uh, the first time. I love her like no other. She's got soul, 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 sweet soul. She teach me how to sing, shows me colors when there's none to see. It gives me hope when I can't believe That for the first time by way of sorrows. And I think, um, again, it's contrary to how I like to think that um, sorrow can be an amazing path to joy. There's um, a counselor who, uh, I can't remember where I first read it, but he he said that um, many times our capacity for joy is carved out by sorrow. And uh, certainly not to say that um it, we're trying to be masochistic i just think that there are times when we're confronted by things by grief where god can sort of slow us down enough to take notice of him that then we find that there's joy in the midst of that and on the other side And so you've been taken by the wind Been taken by the wind. You have known the kiss of sorrows, doors that would not let you in. Outcast and a stranger, you have come by way of sorrow, you have come by way of tears. You'll reach your destiny, meant to find you all these years. Been to find you all these years. So if you're just getting this, let's start. You've been taken by the wind. You've been taken by the wind. You have known the kiss of sorrows, doors that would not let you in, outcast and a stranger. You have come. Sorrow, you have come by way of tears, but you'll reach your destiny. Then to find you all these years, meant to find you all these years. You have drunk a bitter wine, with none to be your comfort. You who once were left behind, will be well at love's table. You have come by way of sorrow. You have come by way of tears. But you'll reach your destiny. Then to find you all these years. Then to find you all these years. Tears that you have wept, you'll dance in freedom ever after. Cause you have come my way of sorrow, you have come my way of tears, you'll reach your destiny, meant to find you all these years, meant to find you all these you have
11: a world of classifications uh the periodic table gives us a nice ordered structure of elements Uh, maybe the degree that you have gives you a sense of an alma mater some type of community that you went to we live in a world of classifications you might be classified as tea party you might be classified at any given moment as leftist activist you might be classified as somebody who uh is a sports person or somebody who is a gleek uh And we do that, I think, in order to try and understand and make sense out of our world. That sometimes it's intrinsic to, I think, how our minds function. To put classifications on things and help us understand where we fit in the structure of everything. This is a game that starts, I think, for us very early on in life. We learn it as children. We learn it when your parents or whoever you live with bought you your first pair of shoes and you wore them to kindergarten. And somebody thought that those weren't cool enough to be in the clique that you were in or wanted to be in. These are things that we learn very early on and they grow up with us. And we come to inhabit a world where classifications are very important and very meaningful. Tonight, as we come to the table though, we find ourselves challenged. Challenged with grace, however. Challenged with the notion that the classifications that we embody, that we think make us better than a person next to us, or somehow more worthy to partake of the body and blood of Christ, are completely wiped away. That the classifications that we have placed on others and that we have placed upon ourselves are broken by the grace of God and the invitation to join in God's family, With all of those around us. As the children of God equal to one another. Relating to one another in freedom and in love. Tonight we're going to have the opportunity to come to the table as kind of a first act. Having read this story of a realization that the grace of God deactivates, breaks down, transcends. Suppresses and overcomes the types of classifications that we tend to live in. All the time. But we're also going to partake of the table tonight, I think, having read this story, with the realization that the fullness of that is not yet complete. That as we look around the room, we will recognize that not all of the children of God are present here. That not all those of every class, of every, gent- of every nation, are represented And so as we partake of the table, we continue this act of repentance that we just sang in absolution. As we move forward with the radical grace of God to continue to believe and to trust and to attempt to live into the reality that God is making all things new. By reconciling us to God and by reconciling us to our fellow human beings. That as we partake of the body and blood of Christ tonight, it will be both an act of receiving the radical grace of God that breaks down all the markers we think are important. But also an act of recognition and repentance that we still hang on to those things, that we still really want to believe that that's important. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come break bread with one another, sharing the body of Christ with one another, saying to each other, as we break it for one another, the body of Christ broken for you. And as we pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And in enacting that, remembering at the same time that we are both given this grace that radically disrupts our lives and radically receives all of us, but also continues to challenge us in the ways that we try to secure ourselves and to justify our own existence before God and before one another. After we receive the table, listen for uh, Wade and Dale to play. They're going to play a song of benediction over us that we can join in singing. So listen to that and make your way back to the circle at that time. But come now and receive the body and blood of Christ. Let it be for you the food and drink of the eternal kingdom that we taste now and is yet still on its way. Amen.
3: Everybody, a quick interruption. We uh, certainly want you to con, con, uh, continue in conversation. We see these encounters at the table as uh, the act of grace. But if you have taken communion or uh, want to wait, I want to invite you to kind of gather back around the band. I, I'm struck by so many times that our liturgy has a conclusion to it. And tonight, this song 40 is in many ways the, a description of the vision that Dan just described. So if, you're, if you've already taken communion or uh, want to wait, just regather around the band here and we'll, uh, we'll sing that together.
0: This is Psalm 40. Wait patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. Out of the miry clay Burn. Yeah.
3: Hey, I should have said it's great to have Catherine back with us wild goosing and back from Atlanta. We love her and miss her. Uh, but, hey, I send you out tonight with uh, a taste of the vision and anticipation that we have at the table of the new song. And may it indeed come quickly. Go in Peace.